The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. It's always wonderful to be here. Good morning to you. I'm so glad I'm here. When I woke up at uh, 6.30, I realized it was 7.30. I went to the symphony last night, and it was gorgeous and wonderful, but I got in bed kind of late, so I forgot. But here we are. Most of us believe that communication is talking. And when I, in my daily life at the Federal District Court in San Francisco, I'm dealing with lawyers and people in deep conflict all the time, and it's all about talking. In my experience as a mediator, a meditator, a long-time yoga and meditation practitioner, and a human being who's made lots and lots of mistakes, I generally have taken the low road in my life, I've discovered the obvious, which many of you probably already know. That communication is about 90% listening. Listening skillfully, however, is very different from the normal listening that we do, which is, wow, I don't agree with what this person is saying. And as soon as they shut up, I'm going to let, set them straight, and here's what I'm going to say. So I'm planning in my head what I'm going to say as soon as they take a breath, or close their mouth, or pause, so that I can leap right in and reveal to them the wonderful truth <laughs> that I have acquired in my mind while I've paid absolutely very tiny bit of attention to what they've been mumbling about, which was entirely wrong in the first place, so why should I bother? <laughs> That's what we call listening. <clears throat> Unlike our tongue, our ears will never get us into trouble. So this morning, I'm going to talk about what the Buddha had to say to us about listening. What wise listening actually is and how it relates to wise speech and what the distinctions of wise listening are so that the model of listening that I will give you it's something that you can easily practice and take on. Generally speaking, when I am communicating with you, I must first set an intention to communicate and connect with you in a deep and meaningful way. And then I must be prepared to listen in myself to what arises and resistance to that intention. I must listen deeply to you, what you're saying, what you're not saying. I must listen to life as it's happening right there in the moment between us, as we connect with one another, or we don't connect with one another. And when you speak, I must paraphrase, repeat back, summarize, not just the content of what you say, but the feeling tone, the emotional underlay of what I'm picking up. 
to give you a chance to say, yes, you got it, Daniel, or no, that's not quite it, or now that you mention it, I think of this. Then, there's a good chance that I've communicated. Uh, 13 or 14 years ago, I was mediating in Denver, Colorado, uh, for an environmental mediation center there called the CDR Associates. And in Denver, there was a Latino neighborhood that was, not surprisingly, surrounded by freeways on all sides, because after all, it was a poor neighborhood, and this was a great place to build freeways. And in addition to the freeways, there was heavy industry everywhere. But this neighborhood was a multi-generational neighborhood, and they had hung on through great challenges externally. They had the most organized neighborhood association I have ever encountered, and a dynamic, incredibly powerful and articulate leader. There were block captains for every half a block, so when something happened, they had tremendous internal communication. And grandparents, fortunately, were still there to care for the grandchildren when the parents were working in the difficult culture that we all know we have now in our country. One of the industries that was nearby was a chemical offloading plant, a transfer point for a chemical company down in Alabama that made uh, hydrochloric acid and other very toxic chemicals. And they would ship it from Alabama up to this uh, central transportation uh, area in Denver and offload it from railroad cars to tractor-trailer trucks to disperse around the Midwest and the West. And as is inevitable, one day there was a spill. There was a leak in one of the connecting lines. And one of the men who spoke to me in this mediation described how he was at work and he saw on television the scene of this ugly, yellow, toxic cloud hanging over his neighborhood. And knowing that his children were in school, he rushed home. But he was a person that didn't look like most of us in this room. And so when he tried to get in the neighborhood, the cops stopped him. The schools had decided to close down and send the children home, even though most of the parents were away working. And the cops who were sent to warn the neighbors that this toxic cloud was hanging over their neighborhood didn't speak Spanish, so they would mostly go and kick the door and say, vamos, and people had no idea what to do. So you can imagine the panic and the upset. But this very powerful neighborhood leader decided to file a lawsuit under a complicated environmental statute called the Community uh, Right to Know about what is happening in their neighborhood. And I and a mediation partner were to mediate between this community group in Denver and this chemical plant down in Mobile. We spent a lot of time talking to 
the parties on both sides about listening and speaking in a skillful way. And we set up the mediation session so that the lawyers were up close to us and the parties were down at the other end of the table across from each other. The woman from the community center took our coaching well and did a brilliant and beautiful speaking from a wise speech place. But the important key, the the chemical company had sent two people, a woman and a man. The man was sort of their HR uh, person, and she was in charge of all the operations. These two people were the key because they listened, and they listened in a way that I'm going to describe. The Buddha taught us about listening. In a sutta, the name of which I can never pronounce, I uh, skipped phonetics. Going to school in South Carolina, they didn't really have phonetics. So I'll do my best. It's a Sususa Sutta. Listening well. Endowed with these six qualities, a person is incapable of alighting on the lawfulness, the rightness, of skillful mental qualities, even when listening to the Dhamma. Which six? When the doctrine and discipline declared by the Buddha is being taught, she does not listen well, does not give ear, does not apply her mind to gnosis, or deep spiritual knowing, grabs hold of what is worthless, rejects what is worthwhile, and is not endowed with the patience to conform with the teaching. Endowed with these six qualities, a person is incapable of alighting on the lawfulness, the rightness of skillful mental qualities, even while listening to the true Dhamma. Now, if you've read any of the suttas, you know that there's always the other side. And it's a repetition, generally, of what we've heard before. Please don't listen to it as a repetition, because the Buddha always teaches us to be aware of what's not working and to be aware of what's working. One without the other is no good for us. We must be aware of both. So, hearing these same words, virtually the same as what's working, Endowed with these six qualities, a person is capable of alighting on the lawfulness, the rightness of skillful mental qualities, even while listening to the true Dhamma. Which six? When the doctrine and discipline declared by the Buddha is being taught, he listens well, gives ear, applies his mind to gnosis, or deep spiritual understanding rejects what is worthless, grabs hold what is worthwhile, and is endowed with the patience to conform with the teaching. Endowed with these six qualities, a person is capable of alighting on the lawfulness, the rightness of skillful mental qualities, even while listening to the Dhamma. So, these six qualities, what do they really mean in terms of practically listening? Listening well. It's the first one. 
my internal experience of being mindful, when you're speaking to me, am I aware? Am I present? Am I with my breath? Am I in my body? Am I scattered and away? Being aware of, mindfully aware of, am I listening well? The second one was giving ear. That's my making certain that you get that I'm paying attention. No, that's an obvious way. I'm giving you my ear. I am physically demonstrating to you that I am paying attention. Eye contact, if that's culturally appropriate. Sitting up, alert, nodding, gesturing, paying attention. Those kind of physical manifestations. So you're aware that I'm present. Applying our mind to gnosis, or deeper, deeper understanding. We live in relative reality where everything is a paradox. And of course there is ultimate reality, the deep truth. And there's lots of nice philosophical discussions between relative reality and ultimate reality. But when I'm listening to you, my ability to hold what you're saying in the paradox of your view and my view is the deeper wisdom that there's no truth inside me or inside you. The truth emerges and arises between us. And that's the deeper listening of skillful, the, the deeper wisdom of skillful listening. And I must apply my mind to gnosis, to the deeper spiritual understanding of the fundamental paradoxical nature of this world in which we live. Rejecting what is worthless. You're going to say things that are not skillful. You're going to project onto me. You might even have some anger and emotion directed to me. My ability to let those come in and set them aside because they're not the deep truth that you're trying to convey to me. Because you wouldn't be angry and upset with me if you didn't care about our relationship in some way. And grabbing on to what is worthwhile. Really expanding and emphasizing the things you say that are connecting and that are helpful to our relationship. And focusing on those. Pulling those out and teasing those out and highlighting them to myself so that when I reflect back, I can highlight them to you. And the patience to follow the teachings. The patience to realize that life, when we're blessed, is long. And relationships are precious gifts. And I must allow space for my development as well as yours. Listen. Do not have an opinion while you listen because, frankly, our opinion doesn't hold much water outside of our own little internal universe. Just listen. Listen until the speaker's brain has been twisted like a dripping towel <laughs> and what they have to say is all over the floor. 
Now, obviously, in a situation where I'm listening to you, there's going to come a time when it's appropriate for me to speak. And this talk this morning is not about wise speech, but I want to remind us all of the principles of wise speech because they're actually directly applicable to listening. And when I'm speaking, I must be aware of them. An intention to speak with a way that supports loving kindness. Being aware of my intention when I speak. Where am I coming from? Intention is volitional. It is purposeful. It causes. And that is karma. If I speak with an angry, ill intent, that has a purposeful, volitional quality to it. Intention is like a seed. A seed is tiny and small, but it grows into a huge plant. When we are aware of our intention, we are intervening mindfully in the very place that we cause our own karma. So intention. And then there are two pairs, is the way I hold them and practice them. Truthfulness married to kindness. There may be something that I need to say to you that's important for me to convey. But can I say that truth in a way that's kind? It will work better. And then there's helpfulness and timeliness married together. So we all have great advice to give to people. And when somebody is talking about a struggle they're having, we instantly know exactly what they should do. And so we're eager to be helpful. But do they just want to be heard? Do they want our tender heart? Or are they looking for advice and help? And are they ready for it, even if they are? So can I be helpful at the right time? So being aware of my intention, because that is the karmic consequence of what I'm getting ready to say. That's the power Our powerful intention is purposeful. It creates, it generates like a seed, and so that's where our karma is made. Intention, truthfulness married to kindness, helpfulness married to timeliness. Philip Moffat, in his wonderful new book, Dancing with Life, says, Right right speech involves listening from the heart. That is, you give your full attention to the words of others and listen without judging, without preparing a response or comparing. Listening from the heart means that you listen with an attitude of compassion, kindness, and humility. So how do we apply these six qualities of listening to the wise speech in a practical way in our daily life. So first, there's a structure for understanding what true communication and listening is. And it's a simple structure, and it's one to practice and be mindful of. When I am listening, I am not just listening to you. 
I am remembering the first two qualities the Buddha spoke of. I'm listening well, which means I'm listening mindfully inside. I'm aware of my bodily reactions. I'm aware of my emotional reactions. I'm paying attention on a dual track, actually a three-level track, as I'll, I'll get it ready to tell you. So I'm aware here. I'm also focused and listening to you. I am listening externally. And I am listening as deeply and carefully as I can, not just to the content of what you're saying, but to the emotional overlay. Are you angry? Are you sad? Are you depressed? What am I picking up? And then I'm listening to life, part three. The circumstances we're in. What's the context of this conversation? What's going on around us? I'm paying attention to the mood in the room. We all intuitively feel things like that. We just aren't mindful of it. And I'm calling us to be mindful of it. So pay attention to what's happening. Is the room sort of restless and stirry? What's going on in the relationship, in the context, in the atmosphere? And then finally, when it's my turn to speak, I speak following the principles of wise speech, but I don't stop listening. I'm listening to myself internally. How are these words I'm saying resonating for me? And I'm very much attuned to and listening to you. What's the impact my words are having on you? What's going on? And again, what's going on in life around us? So I listen internally. I listen to you. Number two, I listen to life around us. Number three, and when I speak, I speak from wise speech, number four, but I don't stop listening to all of those three things. Scientists have recently discovered something that uh, there's a book, I've, it's a turgid and difficult book, but I still tentatively recommend it. Dan Siegel, who's a professor at UCLA in the uh, medical school, came to speak at Spirit Rock January a couple of years ago. He's an absolutely, incredibly brilliant man, way above my pay grade. But he has written a book called uh, The Mindful Brain. And it's very interesting if you're into this kind of stuff. And he talks about something called mirror neurons in that brain, which I had read about before, and some of you may have heard about mirror neurons. I'm going to do not so good a job of explaining them, but they're the best that I can understand them because science, I'm not. They discovered mirror neurons because scientists were studying what happened in the brain of a monkey when they ate a peanut. So they had the monkey all wired up. Monkey eats a peanut, and they see what happens. And they see that a certain area of the brain, which they're associating with... Uh, excitement and good feelings and sort of an internal positive, happy satisfaction, those, that area of the brain is activated. And then by chance, 
which often happens in scientific experiments. While they were taking a break, but the monkey was still wired up, one of the scientists ate a peanut. And they noticed that the same areas of the brain in the monkey lit up. And they tried various other permutations of this and discovered that it was only when someone did an intentional act that that area of the brain lit up. So when the monkey intentionally ate a peanut, fired up happiness, joy, connection, when the scientist intentionally ate a peanut, same area of the brain and the monkey fired up. Lots of experiments between, and they have now identified mirror neurons that we actually have the ability, as Dan Siegel writes, at a neural level, we embed in our brains not just what we physically see, but the mental intention we imagine is going on in someone else's mind. This is the social nature of our brains. Now, as it, the way it works physically is through our five senses, I see you, I hear you saying something, and it goes into my senses. It actually goes first into the amygdala, which is the most primitive part of the brain, our reactive, fear-driven, fight-or-flight part of the brain. And it goes down through what's called the insula, which is like a, the superhighway of the brain, into our bodies. And guess what? It goes into our guts. So we feel it. And we send it back up through our insula, those feelings and reactions inside ourselves. And then it goes to the prefrontal cortex, which is the executive area of the brain, where we sort and figure out what's happening. So we are wired for empathy. And it's pretty interesting to think about why we are. If 10 or 12 of us were living in a primitive cave thousands and thousands of years ago and we were dependent upon each other for survival and outside were lots of lots of dangers it was really important for me to be able to know what was going on with you and the other 10 people in our little tribe or else i might be out with the saber-toothed tigers so those of us our surviving ancestors intuitively communicated with one another and connected with one another for survival. And we have that. We mostly forget it because we've overlaid so much on top of it. So, how do we put this into practice? What does it look like in a practical way? Empathy is the ability that we have to let another know that we understood them. And not only did we understand the words 
but I am able to demonstrate in words back to you that I understand what you've had to say to me. It's, a, it's an abbreviated reflecting of the facts and the feelings of the speaker. What we do instead of empathize when we're speaking with someone in a conflicting situation or just in a situation where they're trying to tell us something important, like uh, my daughter calling me up on the phone and telling me something that's going on with her in preparation for her marriage, which is coming up next Sunday. When she talks to me and she's upset about something and I reflect back, Jessica, I hear that you're really concerned. Let me say it more clearly. I hear that the tube leading to the refrigerator in the house that you just closed on last night has burst and there's water all over the floor two weeks before your wedding. And that's the facts and the feeling. Honey, you're really upset and scared about that. And she says, no, you didn't quite get it, Dad. I'm really, really upset. <laughs> I'm losing it. What am I going to do? And I don't know what to do. So when I empathize and I reflect back the facts and the feelings that I hear from another, that gives them the chance to listen internally and say, yeah, dad got it. Or there was more that I needed to tell him so I can add to it. Or no, you know, that's not really it. I know I said that, but that's not really it. It gives him the space to go deeper and figure out more where they are. What we do, which is unskillful, rather than that very simple empathetic response where I abbreviate and reflect back to you the facts and the feelings that I've heard to demonstrate to you that I understood and to give you a chance to correct me if I'm wrong or go deeper and expand. What we do instead is that we ask questions. Well, what's, what's going on, Jessica? What happened? She's not up to telling me what happened at that point. She wants to connect with me at a deeper level because she's in a crisis. But we ask questions. We instantly tell them what to do. Call your insurance company. Da-da-da-da-da. So we start to fix the problem. Or we give them sympathy, which is different from empathy. And in a situation like I'm describing, is likely to engender a negative kickback reaction, which will surprise and hurt us. Because I'm being sympathetic, my goodness. Why are you biting my head off? Because sympathy isn't appropriate initially. Empathy, which emphasizes, which demonstrates that I heard your facts and I heard your feeling and I'm letting you know that I got it. 
That's empathy. Sympathy is, oh, I'm so sorry that's happening. That's really terrible. Jeez, I'm sorry. That's sympathy. Nothing wrong with sympathy. It's not skillful at that time. So, the attributes of empathy. I show concern about the situation and the emotion. I'm not evaluating. I'm not saying that. It sounds like you did good. Sounds like you did bad. I'm not evaluating. I'm just reflecting the essence of what is said. I don't have to give it back word for word. And my genuineness, my sincerity is going to skew it if it's not there or it's going to have it land if it is there. So... Going back to the four parts, I must listen internally while Jessica is speaking to me so that I'm aware of what's happening in me, how I'm reacting, so that I can, when it's time for me to speak, be mindfully present. And I must listen to what's going on because I know our long-term father-daughter relationship I know the circumstances she's in, so I've, and I know she's getting married and she just got a new job and moved into a new house, so she's definitely in overwhelm. So I have to take all listening to life, listening to the circumstances. And then when I speak, practicing being aware of my intention, truthfulness married to kindness, helpfulness married to is it the right time? So I might say something, I might use, it sounds like, blah, blah, blah. I, I think you must be feeling, blah, blah, blah. Very simple words. Nothing really hard about it, except being mindful. Asking questions, no, no, no. <laughs> doesn't work. Forget it. Reflect back and when they get that you're with them, they'll provide more information. Connecting first is what's really important. And this is especially for those of us who are guys. You know, empathy we got, we're humans. We just have been cultured not to express it. But we got it. We know how to do it if we will do it. Don't ask questions, and especially for guys, don't fix the problem. <laughs> it's not your job. Your job is to listen wisely and demonstrate that you care and you understand the content and the feeling. There'll be plenty of time when you've established that connection to help problem solve. The time will arise for that, but not in the beginning. The other pitfall is believing that empathy equals agreement. You might be saying something about me that I don't agree with. I might 
later, if I've meditated on it and reflected on it, realize that there's truth to it. But I can empathize and say back to my daughter Jessica, geez, honey, it sounds like you're really upset with me because I'm trying to fix the problem right now instead of getting that you're really in overwhelm and you need me to just hear you. So I haven't agreed with her. I've simply let her know that I hear what she says and I hear the feelings that she's been trying to communicate with me. Empathy doesn't equal agreement. Problem solving doesn't ever work. Asking questions is stupid. <laughs> so, at the end of that environmental mediation in Denver, the problem in the lawsuit was that if the plaintiffs won, the defendants had to pay a huge fine to the federal government for violating their right to know what had happened when that hydrochloric acid spill occurred and the uh, medical consequences of it, the danger to their children, the long-term effect, etc. The company's failure to respond and provide that information to the community, if the plaintiffs won the lawsuit, they paid a fine to the federal government. Didn't help the community at all. What the community wanted, there was one small plot of green space left in that community. And it was owned by another company, and it was, city, it was an abandoned lot. The kids had no place to play except in the streets of the trailer park and in the streets of the neighborhood. They wanted a park. So we had encouraged them, my co-mediator and I, to talk to the city to see if the city would manage and take on the park and to talk to the owner of the plot and see if he would sell it if the chemical company would buy it. So we had all that in place. And several weeks went by, and the same people came back. And again, we had the party sitting down at the far end of the table, across from each other. And here was the time for the woman who was vice president of this chemical company to demonstrate whether she had listened wisely and whether she could speak wisely. I didn't know. I was a little nervous. And the lawyers, of course, want to maintain control of our clients. We don't want them to speak. We should speak and make, you know, it'll be okay. Let me do all the talking. But this woman stood up and she said, I have something to say to you, and I've thought about it a long time, and the way I'm going to say it is going to really upset my lawyers, and you could see them sort of, <laughs> you know, buzz, red alert, red alert, red alert. <clears throat> but I'm going to do it anyway. She said, I have talked to the president of the company, and we want you to know that we cannot imagine what you went through with this event. I know 
that nothing like this would ever happen in my nice white neighborhood in Mobile, Alabama. There are no freeways close to my neighborhood, and there's certainly no chemical offloading plants close to my neighborhood. And she proceeded with a profound and appropriate apology. And then she said, the president and I have agreed to a certain amount of money to help you purchase the park. And I recognize that traditionally in legal situations like this, we make an offer and then we negotiate and then we arrive at a figure. But in the spirit of the way you communicated to us last time, and we want to communicate to you now, we feel like it would be completely inappropriate to negotiate. And I recognize that I'm taking a huge risk because you might not believe me. We want to offer you $150,000 to buy this piece of land. And I knew that that was more money than they had even hoped for. And that's all I've got. I have no more. In respect to you, I am not negotiating. I am offering it all to you. Now that was wise speaking and wise listening which preceded it. And the case not only immediately settled, we had to first calm the plaintiffs down because they wanted to negotiate and get more, but we handled that. Our world can work so much more skillfully than it does. And what we're seeing all across the country is evidence of our inability to speak and listen wisely. None of us in this room can control what's happening in Washington and the craziness of the wars in the Middle East and the Far East. But what we can control and what will make a profound difference is if we do it ourselves in our own lives. Doing it because intention is an act of karmic consequences. Doing it improves the quality of our own lives, which enables us to be more expansive and open and of service to improve the qualities of the lives of our family and those around us. It is the way the world works. And the Buddha, more than anyone I've come into contact with in my 40-some years of spiritual inquiry, was a practical teacher. It's what works. The Silence by Wendell Berry. Though the air is full of singing, my head is loud with the labor of words. Though the season is rich with fruit, my tongue hungers for the sweet of speech. Though the beach is golden, I cannot stand beside it mute, but must say, it is golden, while the leaves stir and fall with a sound that is not a name. It is in the silence that my hope is, and my aim 
a song whose lines I cannot make or sing sounds men's silence like a root. Let me say and not mourn, the world lives in the death of speech and sings there. Let's sit for a moment. Now, I'm happy to take some questions, and those of you who need to leave, feel free to leave, but those of you who would like to sit for a few minutes and ask some questions or have a discussion, I'm happy to do that. Yes. Thank you. What of your writing would you recommend that we reference to get sort of the essence of your talk today? Uh, nothing. <laughs> Can I have your notes then? <laughs> uh, I, uh, yes, you may. If you'll give me an email address, I'll happy to mail them to email them to Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I'm working on a book on mindful conflict resolution. And this talk will be a part of that and... I'm determined to finish it by the end of the year. So it'll be published in 2010, hopefully. Thanks. But if you want my notes, give me an email address. Also, yes. this talk will be coming up on audiodharma.org sometime in a couple of weeks or so if you want to listen to it over again, as I will. <laughs> Let it sink into the brain. Yes. The active listening that you've described is very exhausting. And um, how do you cope with just the energy it takes to stay present with that kind of listening? I hear that your experience of it is exhausting and frustrating, uh, that kind of active listening. And... There's no question in my mind, in my experience, that it can be that way. As I have practiced it, it becomes easier. And the key is listening inside myself. When I am just concentrating so hard on getting every word you say, what is called active listening. It is and can be exhausting. I explicitly didn't use that term because empathic listening is what I'm talking about. So I'm listening not just to the content, I'm listening to the essence of the content and the feelings. And I'm listening inside me, I'm listening to you, and I'm listening to what's happening around us. And that's an open, spacious, expansive, relaxed place that I'm in. I'm meditating. I am literally meditating as I listen to you. 
I'm aware of my breath, I'm aware of my body, and I'm totally open and present in being with you. So it's different from active listening. Just the other night, for example, I was having dinner with a close friend of mine, and he had this long preamble, the essence of which was, I've got some really tough feedback to give you, and you're probably not going to like it. And I felt nervous, but because of all the preparation I was doing for this talk and the work I'm doing on my book, and because of my understanding of mirror neurons, I realized that the nervousness was not mine. I was sensing and feeling his anxiety in speaking to me and giving me this feedback. So as soon as I got, as I remembered that, my heart just opened in compassion to him because I got that he was really trying to serve me, and he did. I needed to hear the feedback he was giving me about the way he heard me speaking to my wife, which is a way I don't want to speak to my wife. And when I got that I was feeling his nervousness and that he cared enough to speak to me, I relaxed. It's a different approach. Does that help? Good. A question over here? Thank you. I, have, um, I really get the experience of deep listening. I also uh, have a doctorate in law, and uh, I am a psychotherapist, and I um, frequently have occasion to be called as an expert witness, and uh, usually court custody proceedings. And um, I have found my own, even with the practice I have, that it seems to work very well in my clinical setting with my clients in dealing with the lawyers. Um, to be very challenging. I, I understand the process, what law school does to young maturing minds, yet um, it's still very difficult for me. Mm -hmm. Yes. And uh, I wonder if you might offer some insight to uh, lessen my suffering. What an interesting background I hear that you have, this combination of your legal experience and your therapy and obviously your mindfulness practice and stepping into family situations that are fraught with the very heart of the dysfunction and destruction of our culture right now. You're right on the point of that. And that's got to be deeply and profoundly 
impactful on you. I do two things when I am dealing with lawyers and mediation, which is pretty frequently. And I very frequently deal with lawyers who believe not only in the rightness of their cause, but they believe that verbal combat and attack on the other side is the way to advance their cause. Skewering the other side and especially cross-examining a witness. And you're sitting in the seat as the object of that. Before every mediation, I do meta for the parties, for myself, for the parties, and for the lawyers. And as I do meta for the, you know the practice of meta, as I do meta for the lawyers, I notice all the negative projections and thoughts I have about the particular lawyer coming up. And there they are for me to be processed, for me to process out. And when I am pretty clear with a lawyer, then I move on. But when a lawyer, I definitely have a lot of stuff and resistance and fear about how they're going to be and recognizing that they're just going to be like this. Then I work on them a lot. And that enables me to find a place of compassion for their suffering that they are so cut off from their humanity and so defended that all they can do is attack. And the second thing I do, or I've already described to you, I do metta for myself. And I, in that way, arm myself and love myself and come into the room in a place of clear intention to serve and being open to what I need to do in order to fulfill my intention. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, over here. I was curious, the, um, <clears throat> as a uh, talking about your day-to-day life, you know, the mediator, and you're listening to uh, both sides and uh, presumably have this open mind and try to uh, listen uh, mindfully and hear, again, with an open mind. Um, But what I'm curious about is to think of it, you know, in a more grandiose plane, here's the Dalai Lama, and he's talking to uh, the Chinese uh, governmental uh, officials regarding their... uh, disagreement um, and uh, you know presumably the Dalai Lama is approaching it mindfully with an open mind and he wants to hear yet you know it's his country it's his, you know, all those things um, this sort of uh, dilemma that we are presented with uh, as individuals where we want to be mindful we want to listen to our daughter we want to listen to people that we're in relationships with and hear them yet 
you know, to back off into the grandiose a little bit, the Dalai Lama and his thing, and he wants to hear, but he definitely wants his country back. And he definitely, I mean, I'm, this is mine. I, I don't know what the Dalai Lama definitely wants, but from the newspapers, I would think. So how do you, um, is this a dilemma that comes up with you that I want to hear, yet I know I have something in the back of my mind, like I want my daughter to do this, or I want my wife, or my, how do you deal with that? If I said it clearly, I hope. So the issue of my own desires, your own agenda, your own my agenda. own agenda, and the resistance from the other side, and what I'm, that's the dilemma you're posing for well, us. in effect, I guess what I'm saying is, I, I didn't want to say it this bluntly, but in effect, you have the skills that you have. You have your resources. You have your beliefs. And those two could conflict regarding listening and really wanting. For example, I enter into situations, and I really want to have an open mind, but I got my agenda. And it's very difficult, if not impossible, for me to do one. Yes. So that's got to be frustrating sometimes for you and conflicting, and it pulls out emotions from you that I suspect, like me, I'm not proud of. Definitely not proud of them. Yeah, yeah. So a little uh, Zen Cohen. Would you rather be right or in relationship? Well, quite frankly, that's the cliche I fall on. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. It's a tough one for us. And uh, I don't have an open mind as a mediator about everything. I have opinions. So if I fail to listen to myself internally when I'm in a conversation with the two sides, if I don't maintain internal awareness and I'm just listening to them, I run the risk of forgetting my agenda and my view of what should happen. And so when I speak to them, I might speak to them from my agenda and my view. To the degree that I practice the number one thing I talked about, which was being mindful of myself, being aware of myself, listening internally, listening externally, listening to the circumstances of life, and then for speaking from the wise speech teachings. So I'm in a situation with my wife, for example, where I want A to happen and she wants B to happen. I have a choice to push for A or to listen internally to my desire for A, to listen deeply for her desire for B, to remember and be aware of the context of life happening around me, and then allow myself to speak wisely. And what happens is I am able to let go of the mistaken belief that the truth lives in me. It doesn't. The truth emerges in relationship. The truth is among us, between us, within us collectively, 
because we are a system. We are an organic system on this planet. We are so deeply connected. That's what mirror neurons are. And we forget that. And we come from an individual, separated worldview. An old Newtonian mechanistic, separative worldview. That the parts can be separated and examined and understood as parts, not as a system. It's insanity. But it dominated human thinking for centuries and still dominates our political world and our social world. We must move to a quantum, relativistic, systemic worldview. And inside a quantum, relative, systemic worldview, the truth is among us. It's not in me. So my ability to listen internally, to listen externally to you, to listen to all of life that's happening, including my worldview and the systemic connected nature of us, will allow the truth to emerge and I get to be surprised at what it is. And sometimes with my wife, it might be, oh, oh, let's do A. Sometimes it might be, oh, oh, okay, let's do B. And oftentimes, it's X. It's some unknown thing that we both go, wow, you know, I really, what about this? And there it is. Because we've come from honoring, listening, speaking, relationship, and our connections. That's the heart of it for me. Beautiful question, sir. Thank you. Yes. Uh, when does it become appropriate to ask questions, especially if you're confused about what you've heard or you're unclear? Fabulous. So after you've spoken and I've empathized back by reflecting succinctly what I've heard and the feeling that you've, that I believe you've spoken, and you come back and sort of clarify it, there will be a sort of a natural moment where you can say, you know, I don't quite, un I'm not sure I'm getting it. It'll, it'll just emerge and arise. And especially for us guys, when the first impulse to ask a question comes up, when the second, the third, <laughs> we need to hold off as long as possible because our, our impulse to problem solve and ask questions is so strong. But there will be an organic moment when it just makes sense to say, you know, I, I'm not sure about this. What's, help me understand because the conversation will start to move and flow in a way that will surprise you. Yes? There's a practice called uh, compassionate communication or nonviolent communication from uh, Marshall Rosenberg. Mm -hmm. 
I was wondering um, uh, how sounds like what you're talking about is similar to that, but can you contrast the two? Yes, yes, Please. definitely. Um, in the course of my 40-some years of exploration, I've dipped my toe into things like neuro-linguistic programming and NVC. And for me, and I speak just for me, a, a structured, a highly structured process doesn't work. I, my mind gets caught up into what does it mean when their eyes go up to the left and their head tilts up? I don't remember it well. I don't hold it. It's too complicated for me. And I notice every time that it takes me out of being present, I truly believe that communication is more simple. And I believe that people who have created these structures have a mind that works that way. It's sort of an engineering mind. They come up with this structure. And I've watched people do it. And it just leaves me, you know. I, I bought this card last night in a shop before my wife and I went to the symphony. And it has this little dog uh, on its hind legs dancing. And it says, first dance. Then think. It's the natural order of things. <laughs> and, and so what, uh, what I've done my best to distill and offer to you this morning is a communications dance. It's very simple and very easy to operate and understand. And it, for me, calls me present doesn't put me in my head trying to remember some 25-step structure with subparts. <laughs> I just can't do it. Thank you. That, that makes a lot of sense. I, I see what you're talking about. Right. Yes. I just wanted to offer a communication skills resource. Um, oh, good. Uh, with the women I've worked with over the last 25 years, and the website is comoptions, come for communicationoptions.com, and it mirrors very much the four parts you were talking about. It's, it's, it's her communication um, skill format is inspired by Buddhist concepts and philosophy. Wonderful. Wonderful. And her name is Mudita Mis Nisker in the East Bay, and she leads workshops. She's a counselor ah. and works with is there, couples. Is she Wes Nisker's wife? Ex-wife, yeah. Ex-wife, mm -hmm. okay. Yes. Uh, Comoptions, C-O-M-O-P-T-I-O-N-S dot com. Oh, great. Thanks. Thanks for that. She's wonderful. I really yeah. highly recommend her. Yes. When does uh, listening um, have, have boundaries? And I'm speaking about um, communicating with someone where the communication becomes abusive. And 
you realize that the person doesn't have these tools that we're talking about. Right. And, you know, when you're in a workplace, you're out in the world, um, a lot of people are under stress, and what I'm finding is they're not in touch with their feelings. And a lot of times people uh, feel what they f- how they react is not really, or they're not really angry for the reasons they think they are. So where do you, you know, where are your boundaries in this when you're communicating with someone who's going on and on and you know you can't get anywhere? Do you walk away? What, what do you do? It depends upon the circumstance, obviously. If it's someone that I'm required by life circumstances to be in communication with, you know, a family member or a coworker then I'm obviously going to go further in, in an effort. But if it's somebody that I don't have those requirements, my boundaries are pretty quick and pretty strong. Thank you very much. Namaste, I'm gone. Uh, if it's the first situation, the important thing for me to do is to be truthful with kindness. I want you to know that the way in which you're communicating to me, my guess is you're not aware of it, but it's really hard and it hurts me. I don't feel like I have a chance to say a word. And if I say a word, I feel like you don't even listen at all. So I'm willing to hang in here and make an effort, but only so long as and only if I get that you're going to make an effort too. Otherwise, my communication with you is going to be purposeful and short as possible. So I need to get myself up to the courage of being straight and truthful, married with kindness, and starting with that important karmic intention to serve, that I'm not speaking to this person with the intent to hurt them or unload on them all the emotion I've built up over the years when they've done this to me. So I've got to prepare myself so that I can speak to them with the intention to serve so that I don't have karma kickback for me And I speak truthfully with kindness and I want to be helpful and I want to do it at the right time. And I set those boundaries. It's perfectly appropriate for you to set boundaries. Knowing, being mindful of our systemic connection and what is the lesson I need to learn here. And how can I, somehow in my life, I have created the karma that's put me in this person's path. Here I am. This is my life. There is so much suffering that comes from the belief that this shouldn't be happening to me. 
Why is this happening to me? It shouldn't be happening to me. I'm a good person. Hello? It's where I am. It's what's happening. That has to mean that I have karmically put myself there. And do I want to keep putting myself there? Or do I want to get it so that I can move on? That's the issue. So if I give it back to them in the same way they're giving it to me, or if I cut them off with rudeness and self-protection, I'm not going to get it. And maybe a year later, maybe tomorrow, the reincarnation of that person is going to show up in somebody else. And I'll be working on it again. And in my experience, every time it comes around, it's harder. It's more difficult. It's more laden with the fact that I had bad intentions when I cut it off before and I didn't deal with it well. So it gets more complicated. So, handle it. Meditate on it. Prepare yourself. Really work on it. And free yourself from the consequences of the karma that put that person in your life. It's your life, and you're in it, and it's where you are, and so clearly it's where you're supposed to be. Yes. Yes, I was wondering if you would have any advice for uh, communicating with children, especially teenagers, for instance, who really do not want to listen to you anyway. So when you tell them that you are not working with me, you're not hearing me, they say, great, you know, we won't talk, you know. So how, what advice do you have on that? Well, I can give you the advice of my ex- single experience with my daughter. One night when she was about 15 or 16, she had taken her mother's place at the other end of the table because I want to sit here. And her mother gracefully stepped aside. And I said something to her. I don't remember what it was. But she stood up, hands on her hip, and said, You are the biggest (laughs) that I have ever known in my life. And she stormed out of the dining room and went into her room and slammed the door hard enough to sort of rattle the windows in the house. And I took a deep breath and I sat there and I was really rattled because here I am, yoga teacher, teacher, meditator, you know, (laughs) teaching relationships. And I, it, it hurt, you know, those were harsh words. That was my first reaction and I noticed that and I kept sitting there and then I thought to myself, well, I must be doing something right. Because if I had even done anything, even 10%, even 1% of what she just did to me with my father, I wouldn't be here and she wouldn't be here. (laughs) So, 
I encouraged myself. <laughs> I acknowledged myself. And then my third thought was, there is truth in what she's saying. I am attempting to control her for her own good. I am doing that. So the last thought, and here's my advice, I stood up, I went to her door, and I knocked and said, may I come in? And by this time, of course, she's feeling really badly about cursing me and calling me what she had called me, and you know, she's in shame. And she said yes. And I walked in and I looked at her and I said, Jessica, I want to learn what it is that I am doing that causes you to feel that way. And the only way I can learn and I can be supportive of you and what you're going through as a teenager is if we talk. So I want you to know, no matter what, I am not going to stop relating with you and talking with you. I am not going away. You can try to push me away as hard as you want to push, but I am not going away. And I stuck to that. And I just kept talking to her. And when she said she didn't want to talk, I respected that boundary sometimes when I felt it was appropriate and otherwise... I said, tell me about why you don't want to talk. Help me understand what's going on with you. Yes. A while back last year, you, um, you said that you would like to uh, center your practice around META, I think. Yes. For this year. Yes. How's, how's that going? It's tough, <laughs> but I'm, I'm really liking it because uh, my concentration is improving and I get to really be much more in tune with the negative thoughts I'm having about myself on a daily basis. When I do metta for myself, I can feel those places where I'm you know, I'm down on Daniel, and then I do it for my mother and my daughter and my wife, and, and I, I stay really fresh with those relationships. So I'm finding it to be a very helpful practice. And then, as I said to this gentleman over here, when I'm getting ready to go in mediation, my metta for the couple of days before that is for the lawyers and the parties and the mediation. And that makes a huge difference. So does Meta play any special role with regard to the practice that we've been talking about today? Yes. For me, anyway, the experience is that my heart is much more open. And I have more compassion for myself. And so when I'm dealing with someone like this, the woman here, where you need to set boundaries. When I'm dealing with that kind of situation, I have more compassion. And the lawyers that are just have had their minds 
twisted by the combative, negative way that we do legal work in this country. I have more compassion for them rather than anger. So I commend it to you. Thank you all very much. Bless you and me and the whole wide world. <laughs>